Hello and welcome to the Random Works podcast. Today I have Dr. Sajid Datta, who is currently an assistant professor in the Department of Chemical and Biological Engineering at Princeton University. Sajid bagged his bachelor's in mathematics and physics with honors from the University of Pennsylvania, following which he completed his graduate studies in uh, physics from Harvard University. After which he did a postdoc in chemical engineering at Caltech before joining the faculty at Princeton. Sajid's research focuses on the physical chemical dynamics of soft and living materials in complex environments, focusing on three prominent classes of materials, microstructure, complex fluids, swellable and shrinkable gels, and bacterial communities as active matter motivated by energy, environmental and biotechnology applications. His work integrates microscopy, microfluidics, soft materials chemistry, and biophysical characterization. And his work also complements experimental work with theoretical and computation modeling, applying ideas from fluid and solid mechanics, colloidal science, polymer physics and chemistry, statistical mechanics, and network science. Welcome, Sujay. Thank you. Well, that's the podcast. <laughs> it's really great to have you here. So something that really struck out from you, you have had a very varied experience, both in terms of personal and professional life and all. So how and when did your interest in science develop? That's a good question. Um, so, uh, um, you know, my trajectory in, uh, in, in science has been kind of, uh, you know, as, as uh, uh, I think the title of this podcast is fitting, it, it's really been a random walk. Um, you know, I, I think uh, when I was a kid, uh, and especially when I was in high school, um, you know, my interest was not in science. Um, I was more interested in the social sciences. And so, um, you know, I, I growing up, uh, you know, I had a really big interest in economics and um, philosophy. Those were kind of the things that I was most interested in, uh, you know, when I was a teen. Um, and so when I went to college, uh, you know, I, I took the various uh, courses that you just take in, in your first year. Um, and I, I was really interested in economics and philosophy. And so I started out actually thinking I possibly wanted to be a philosophy major. And then, um, you know, so I took some philosophy classes and some econ classes, and I still love economics to this day. But, uh, you know, I took some classes and I realized that I wanted something with a little, you know, I really appreciated the, um, uh, the quantitative analytical framework that, you know, um, one often uses in uh, studies of philosophy and the quantitative and analytical framework that, uh, that econ economists use. But I wanted something a little with a little more meat and a little more kind of um, concrete connection to our everyday, uh, everyday world. And so, you know, so I was taking these philosophy classes and these economic cl economics classes, and I was like, oh, I want something with a little more quantitative, a little more scientific uh, uh, content to it. And so I started taking math classes and I was really interested in that. Um, I, you know, so I dual majored in math as an undergrad, but then I took this physics class and that was really the the start of it for me. I took, you know, just an intro physics class with um, a professor at Penn named Charlie Johnson. And Charlie is just a really dynamic um, uh, instructor, really kind of made the material, which, you know, to many people can be very boring. It's like balls rolling down inclined planes and projectiles and whatever, right? 
uh, but he made it very engaging and very, very uh, dynamic. And so I was just really into, um, into that. And, you know, so I took Charlie's class and I actually, um, you know, asked him afterwards, you know, so this is after my freshman year, I said, hey, um, you know, I think I find what you do interesting and, you know, just uh, uh, the, this physics stuff in general seems very interesting to me. Could I find out more? Could I join your lab? And so, you know, Charlie graciously took me on uh, uh, into his lab um, the summer after my freshman year of college. And, you know, uh, Charlie's lab does nanoscience. So, you know, studies of carbon nanotubes and graphene and stuff like that. And I just thought it was the coolest thing. I really fell in love with scientific research that summer. That was the summer after my freshman year and the scientific approach and way of thinking. And so really that was kind of what did it for me. What, and, and so I eventually moved away from, uh, you know, economics and philosophy, and I chose to specialize in math and physics. And I just really love doing research and really just learning new things, discovering new things. And I loved, um, you know, Charlie's lab wasn't traditional physics in the sense that, you know, we were doing things that bridge, you know, chemistry and physics and biology. There's some work on, you know, detecting viral proteins and things like that. And so I just thought it was so fascinating and so cross-disciplinary. And I really um, fell in love with science and scientific research then. And so I continued actually in Charlie's lab every single year uh, it, as an undergrad after that. And that's, that's kind of, you know, what started everything else for me. That's an absolutely riveting account of your really wonderful random walk through science and into science in particular. And that yeah. was some really, really fun experiences. Yeah, it's, 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 um, it's, it's, and it's been, a, you know, it's still been a random walk even beyond that. Um, and I, I'm very, I'm just very thankful to Charlie for a, you know, um, just taking on this random freshman into his lab and, you know, be just, um, yeah, giving me the opportunity to opportunity to really go beyond the kind of dry textbook stuff that you often learn in intro undergrad courses and, you know, see the beauty of scientific research and see how, um, how much fun there is at the intersection of different disciplines. And so um, I'm very thankful for that. And actually, you know, now as a, as a professor, I really try to, um, open my lab to undergrads and really give undergrads lots of opportunities to do research for precisely that reason. It changed my life. I, I can say that, you know, with, with, uh, with very little exaggeration, it really changed my life and set me on this kind of trajectory that I'm on today. And I similarly try to give undergrads opportunities to, you know, at least get a sense for what research is and see the beauty of research. And if they decide that, oh, I love this, I wanna keep doing this, great. But if they decide, you know what, there's something else that I'm more interested in, also great, but at least they have the, uh, the exposure to what we do in research. And, and uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And you know, so I, I continue doing research as an undergrad in Charlie's lab. Um, it was really fun because that was around the time when graphene was actually, you know, which is like, a, such a hot nanomaterial was really starting to um, 
uh, rise to prominence. You know, that's when, um, you know, I still remember when, you know, some of the initial papers by, from Andre Geim's group at Manchester, where they, you know, figured out ways to use scotch tape to isolate single layer graphene. I still, you know, those papers were published when I was, you know, working in the lab doing carbon nanotube um, research. And um, it was just so much fun to be a part of this field that was just so, you know, exploding. And, um, and so I got a chance to actually, you know, uh, uh, work on graphene and we discovered some cool things. And, um, I, you know, I got the chance to publish as an undergrad and um, it was just so much fun. And, and just that process of scientific discovery um, was, you know, was, was just so exciting to me that, you know, I decided I'm going to go to grad school. I'm going to keep doing it. I did not have this kind of strategic farsighted goal that, oh, you know what, I'm going to become a professor one day. I just knew that I really liked doing research. And so, you know, to do re more research, you go to grad school. And so I just, I said, okay, I'm going to go to grad school and do more research. And then after grad school, I was like, I love research, you know? And so I decided, all right, I'm going to do a postdoc. And then, you know, uh, after I, you know, did a uh, postdoc for a few years, I was like, well, looks like the, the, you know, the career that I need to pick is being a professor. Cause that, you know, that's really how I get to do research all the time. And so that's kind of what led me to where I am today. But it, it you know, there was no farsighted strategic view. It was really just, falling in love with research from day one and, you know, uh, seeking out opportunities to get to do it. And, you know, here I am today. Absolutely. That's a trajectory many in science can relate to and something that will also surprise people who are typically outside academia and science in general. But scientists as a whole have random walks as the main motivation rather than any fixed strategic path that they chart out right at the very beginning. Uh, this is the hoops you need to cross through to get a plane ticket to Stockholm. No one really does that. But right. and that's something you described really well. Curiosity-driven basic science, it's a fundamental tenet of society as a whole. Uh, unfortunately, it is under attack in these post-truth times where alternative facts rule the roost and all. But as you said, as and you mentioned the graphene work that happened, I believe somewhere when you started grad school or you were finishing your undergrad a Nobel Prize also happened for that matter and incidentally the scientist who won it's Andrew Graham as you mentioned is also the only Ig Nobel laureate so he was yeah, right. levitating right, a right. frog and that was like right. exactly a decade before he won the Nobel Prize that's <laughs> the thing so it's really really essential to sort of chase your curiosity rather than trying to chart a fixed path or trying to do some hot work in hot areas and all because you never know what will explode in the coming days and all i you know it it certainly it's i i i agree it's it certainly you know um worked worked out for me and i feel very privileged and lucky to get to do what i do and i uh, you know, I, I literally, uh, you know, I, I pinch myself every day. I, I, I feel very lucky to get to do what I do. And, you know, there, there are people who, you know, from a very early um, uh, age say, okay, you know, when I grow up, I want to be uh, whatever, X. And they are, you know, single-mindedly, they do everything they need to do to become the best X in the world. And they do an exceptional job. 
and I, you know, I find that very admirable. And, you know, for people, um, you know, for whom that is their kind of internal drive and motivation, that's great. It, you know, the, and I really, really admire that. There are people, you know, in academia who say, you know, you know, from an early age say, I want to solve this problem, or, you know, I, I'm really interested in, you know, trying to address, uh, trying to develop new cancer ther therapeutics, for example, that's an important problem and you know we need good people working on problems like that and they say this is my motivation this is my goal i'm gonna you know single-mindedly work toward that goal and i really respect and admire people who do have that kind of singular focus and that long-term vision but you know that's not for everyone and i think other people um and i'm i i'm in that category i think you know um perhaps enjoy more the process of, you know, discovery. And there's this, there's a quote that actually I, I um, came across when I was, when I was very young, probably in high school or something that um, has always resonated with me. It's, it's, it you know, I, I, it resonates with me to this day. In fact, uh, I used to have it in my email signature when I was, when I was an undergrad, it was, it was kind of funny. Um, and the quote is by Carl Sagan, who is, you know, a very gifted uh, 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 science communicator and scientist. Um, and the quote is, somewhere something incredible is waiting to be known. And that really resonates with me because, um, you know, in this world that I inhabit, the world of research, whenever we discover something, right, there's, there's this moment when you discover something and you, know, you haven't written it up yet, you haven't published it yet, you haven't given talks on it yet. There's a moment when only you and you know, your, the, the people you work with are the only people on the planet and in the history of humankind who know that thing, who've discovered that new thing, right? And that's amazing. We, you know, it's incredible to me that for a living, what we get to do is discover things that people didn't know before. That is just, that blows my mind. We are constantly on the frontiers of human knowledge and we're constantly discovering new things that maybe one day will completely transform our lives. And that's not why I personally do it is, you know, because I want to make a better rocket ship or, you know, a new, more effective therapeutic or whatever. Those are important consequences of fundamental research that emerge necessarily from fundamental research. Fundamental research is uh, necessary for those, um, um, you know, life-changing uh, technologies to arise. But for me, that's not the, the end goal. I'm more just... Um, I just enjoy the process of getting to do scientific research and discover new things. And, um, you know, that process and, you know, just chase interesting questions. Um, and that process is, you know, is, is what got me interested in it. Um, you know, the summer after my freshman year, which was actually, I'll tell you right now, that was, so I started college in 2004. So that was the summer of 2005, right? And now it's the summer of 2021, right? So like 16 years ago, um, I you know got bitten by the research bug just because I fell in love with this process of discovery and you know just learning new things. And that every single day, you know, for the past 16 years 
has been the the driver for what I do. It's you know not to you know to come up with you know these end goals that are going to change society although ultimately that is of course one of the things that we uh we strive for but it's really just uh enjoying that process of learning new things and so it, it works for some people other people you know are driven by kind of a a, a more focused approach and you know different people have different styles and for me that's how i've done things and and that's how i continue to do things and i really enjoy it Absolutely. Those are some really fantastic points you made. Kalsagan is someone I'm lucky to share my birthdays with and all, and an exceptional science communicator. And as you talked about science, especially in its last refuge in academia as a whole, pursuing basic science as a whole is a real privilege. And one of the last few jobs in the world where you can literally make mistakes without yeah. being sort of penalized for it. Because Fortunately or unfortunately, the Bell Labs of the days of your don't exist anymore. The current corporate labs that are out there, they are totally out there to sort of maximize the money-making opportunities of their tech giants and all. But at the same time, the academia, the science that one can pursue in university academic settings is something truly a privileged individual to pursue. And as you talked about, pursuing curiosity-driven basic research is something that has the key potential to change the world. And one can also talk about the mRNA vaccine. So one might yeah. feel like looking at the time they were developed in just in a span of year, in some nine to 10 months, they were right uh, all the clinical trials and everything happened, the manufacturing happened, and there was a shot in your arm. But it was years and decades of basic research that led to that process where you could develop a vaccine in such a record fast time because nothing of that sort has happened in the world before. And the National Institutes of Health has been funding mRNA research for the last three to four decades. And although it will be forwarded to conspiracy theorists, but four decades earlier, no one was writing grant seeking to make mRNA vaccines. mRNA is what thought of as a scientific dead end, but it was the belief of millions of people, researchers, who toiled away without the limelight that led to where it is. And this is something really important to understand in this modern day world where basic science is under attack. There are senators, congressmen, and other elected representatives who think getting labs drunk in the getting uh, rats drunk in the lab is a futile endeavor. But these are some really, really important research that needs to be carried out to understand the neurological processes of the brain and all, and to devise therapeutics for people who suffer from debilitating diseases and all. Exactly, exactly. I think, I think, um, you know, yeah, the, the, you know, the vaccine is a clear example that I think um, is a clear example of what you just said. I think we can actually, you know, we as scientists and science communicators could perhaps, you know, I think, I think this is an opportunity for us to really highlight exactly what you just said, that the fact that, you know, um, we as uh, you know, as a scientific enterprise, were able to come up with um, this solution so quickly, is because of this, you know, these decades and decades of basic research that were done prior to you know the the these uh, current conditions, and um, that's what basic research is what enables those transformative, transformative, you know, um, solutions and life changing kind of solutions 
to um, emerge. You know what, right now, me and you are talking through our computers, right? And in fact, every single aspect of our lives, right, relies on silicon microelectronics and transistors and stuff like that. Well, you know, the, the foundations of all of these electronic devices that we use, how we're communicating right now, right, relies on, you know, the transistor and other uh, microelectronic components, which were developed not because, you know, someone somewhere was like, you know what, several decades from now, Sujit Data and Abhigyan Ray are going to talk on Zoom, and that's why we need to develop the transistor, right? No, no, you know, this is, it's, it, it was simply because, you know, a bunch of physicists at Bell Labs, and I'm, I apologize if I'm screwing up the history, but, you know, as I understand it, a bunch of physicists at Bell Labs were interested in understanding single electron tunneling between, you know, various uh, quantum wells in, in uh, microfabricated devices. And that eventually set the foundation for um, many of the aspects on which current um, microelectronics technology is based. And it completely changed our, you know, every fabric of, uh, you know, of, of our society. Were people envisioning that when they first uh, did those studies? Of course not, right? And that's what I think is the power of basic research is that, you know, probably many um, basic studies in basic research, many you know, scientific studies that we do on the basic end of the spectrum will probably not make an impact, right? They probably will not, you know, they'll, they're interesting, they're interesting curiosities and they probably will not go anywhere. But the ones that do will likely completely transform our lives over a time scale of tens, 20, 30, 40 years, right? Um, in ways that we cannot even imagine. And, you know, broadly across, you know, fields, across, uh, uh, you know, circumstances. And that's the power of basic research is, you know, many of those studies of rats getting drunk to use the example that you said, I don't know, maybe, you know, maybe they'll lead to interesting discoveries that will be, you know, interesting uh, scientific discoveries that maybe, you know, won't, won't um, completely transform the life of the, you know, of the uh, typical uh, layperson. But some of those will likely completely transform our lives. And that's really the, pro uh, the, the power and promise of basic research. And so I agree completely with you that, and, and it's, it's hard to predict a priori, which ones are going to be the most transformative and impactful and which ones aren't. But the fact is, they will. They will transform our lives in some way. And um, as you said, that's, you know, I think that's that's part of the, the power and promise of basic research and why we need to keep doing what we're doing. And, the, you know, the mRNA vaccine that you mentioned is, is just another, you know, very recent, very timely example of that. 
Absolutely. And there are millions of examples around mRNA vaccines are out there, transistor researchers out there. And then there is one can talk about Einsteinian relativity underlying the physics of GPS oh, systems yeah. and all. And one can also talk about how certain decisions in moments of time had huge significance. One can talk about considering our interest in fluid mechanics or von Karman insisting on joining an institute that will fund an closed tunnel, wind tunnel, something that was radical for his days, but something that actually led to the creation of JPL, I believe. So you were there for your postdoc days at Caltech and all. And these are the things, these are some belief in oneself and a desire to pursue one's curiosity is something that has the potential to change the world. But as you stated, this is not something that will immediately change the world, but in fact, over the years, will be long term. And even as now, buzzwords like quantum computer computing, the, uh, the artificial intelligence take over the news media. There is a growing shift to seeking uh, sort of applications of one's work and all, but that's a very, very sort of high-end enterprise and something that's not always promises to be successful. And there's a reason you need to keep funding basic research, allowing people to pursue their curiosities because you never know what will change the world. Right. Yeah, and and you know I I, um, I I completely agree, and I you know I had a I was very lucky also. Um, so when I did my PhD, so I'll, I'll you know I'll tell you a, a personal anecdote. So I mentioned you know my my uh, journey in science started with my undergrad uh, research experiences, um, thanks to Charlie Johnson, and that really is how what you know got me interested in research, and that's how I got bitten by the research bug, and so. You know, I was actually, and so what I did in undergrad was quantum nanoelectronics and, uh, you know, nanomaterials. And so that's what I thought I was going to do um, in graduate school. And so when I applied to graduate school, you know, I, I was uh, looking at different departments with, you know, with the idea that that's what I was going to keep doing for research is some nanoelectronics type thing. And, um, you know, and then, uh, I, I can tell you that story later if you want, um, but I ended up completely switching fields. And, you know, I met this guy, Dave Waits at Harvard on one of my visits to graduate school. And I was like, wow, what this guy does is super interesting. And I don't know anything about it, but I just think this is, you know, the most interesting thing. I completely switched fields. I joined Dave's lab and, you know, that set the foundation for the work that I do now, you know, in soft matter physics um and and soft matter engineering and one thing that i learned from dave you know dave actually you mentioned bell labs and these industrial labs um that used to be you know kind of these really hotbeds for for basic fundamental research you know back in the 80s and the 70s and 80s and so on right and so the field of soft matter physics actually owes much of its current um you know, current discoveries and, uh, you know, the, the, the current state of the field owes much of that to research that was done at ExxonMobil um, research labs in the 70s and 80s. A lot of the kind of um, real leaders in soft matter uh, came from ExxonMobil, you know, current leaders of uh, soft matter physics came from ExxonMobil and they were at ExxonMobil in, you know, the 70s, 80s and uh, 90s and so on. And my PhD advisor, Dave, was one of them. He was at Exxon for, I don't know, he, he, he did his PhD in superconducting research. And then he decided he wanted to switch fields and he went to Exxon. 
And he was at Exxon for, I don't know, something like 10 or so years um, doing basic soft matter research. And then eventually he went, uh, he, he went back into academia and he's been doing soft matter research since. And because of that interesting perspective where you know, Dave was in industry and in academia, something that I learned from him as a graduate student was, you know, of course, follow um, you know, your curiosity, follow, you know, try to really dig deep and understand the basics of whatever you're studying and really try to understand it at a deep level. And I'm very thankful to Dave for teaching me how to, you know, how to think deeply like that. Um, but something Dave uh, um, also always emphasized was that was to, 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 to you know, think deeply about problems, but to also try to work on problems that other people would be interested in that you could motivate, you know, that had some motivation in some kind of industrial problem or societal problem of some sort, you know, to not just work on problems just because you're curious about them in isolation, but to still try to really work on things that, um, you know, connect to something that, you know, people care about in industry or, you know, in other areas of academia. And to really, you know, try to not just work in isolation, but to try to connect what you do to what other people are doing and to try to work on things that other people can build on and really then take, you know, to the next level. And, um, and so I really appreciated, you know, that really interesting viewpoint from Dave and that, per, that perspective on research from Dave, where he would always challenge his students to, of course, try to think deeply and be curious about everything, but to also try to work your hardest to work on problems that connected to more applied problems that people actually care, care about you know, every day right now. And so, yeah, so it's, it's uh, I've, I've been lucky to kind of be exposed to a diverse, and then, you know, I've also interacted with people in industry and in more applied settings, you know, who, who focus on very much the applied research. And so I've been very lucky to get to see a broad range of perspectives on different modes of doing research. And, um, and that's been fun. And that's really shaped how I do research today, how I do basic fundamental research today. Absolutely. There was a time when industries too were a hotbed of basic fundamental research that literally revolutionized the world. The bell loves in its early incarnation ended somewhere in the mid 90s. But till day, till 2020, they have been receiving multiple Nobel Prizes, Abel Prizes, Turing Awards for fundamental research, pioneering research that happened over there that literally revolutionized the world. And as you talked about ExxonMobil, one also remembers that a few years back, there was a very a long-awaited Nobel Prize that happened for batteries, lithium-ion batteries, right. with Professor John Goodenough. And his two other fellow laureates, uh, Professor Stanley Whittingham, as well as Akari Tishino, they were both at two power, two industrial powerhouses, ExxonMobil. Professor Stanley Whittingham was at ExxonMobil, and Akari Tishino was at the Sony Corporation. And they were also instrumental in making lithium ion batteries that literally right. revolutionized the world. Any digital 
equipment that we are using today, there is a high probability it's powered by lithium ion batteries. And it's right. really important to remember that so many of these happen in those industrial settings and all. And it's really unfortunate that things have come to an head where the industrial basic research doesn't happen anymore. One seriously hopes it happens and it sort of reverts back to the way it was funded and sort of prioritized by the industry rather than being sort of shut off in the sidelines and all. And you talked about your ex interesting experience that you had that led to sort of joining Dave's love for grad school and all. So was it at a time when you were actively scouting grad school mentors, prospective labs to join for doctoral studies and all? And why didn't you elucidate us on it? Yeah, that's, uh, so, so that's also, you know, I, I think um, one of the, um, I think life-changing experiences for me, you know, well, looking back on my uh, career trajectory, there are certain, you know, uh, events and occurrences that I can look back on in retrospect and see that they really kind of um, were life-changing and, you know, brought me to where I am today. And so the first one I think was, you know, what I mentioned about my interactions with Charlie Johnson and just Charlie's uh, willingness to let me into his lab. And that's how I got bitten by the research bug. And then, so, you know, I, I was doing nanomaterials and nanoelectronics research. That's what I thought I was going to do for graduate school. And so, you know, one nice thing I think about um, many graduate programs in the US, at least, is that, you know, when you're admitted to a graduate program, they, this was pre-pandemic, obviously, they, they um, you know, there's a, uh, a graduate recruiting event where, you know, we do this in our department where um, the admitted graduate students come, they visit, they talk to students, they talk to faculty, you know, they uh, get a sense for the place, and then they make a decision on where they want to go, right? And so I was lucky that I had, you know, um, uh, several different options, and uh, I was really unsure where I wanted to go. And I was trying to, you know, I was trying to figure it out. I went to all these places, met all these incredible people. And um, yeah, it was just very inspiring, but also very difficult because, you know, ultimately you have to pick one place. And so I was visiting um, the physics department at Harvard. And again, you know, and when you visit these places, you basically make a list of, you know, these are all the faculty members whose work I'm interested in. Um, and, you know, can I meet with these people? And then they make a schedule and you meet with them. And so, you know, I met with a whole bunch of the nano um, people and it was great. And, you know, I met, they just do incredible things. Um, but then I had some free time in my schedule and I was like, okay, you know, let me just try to meet with someone else. And uh, so I was walking by and I walked by Dave's office and um, he, you know, he was just in there just, talking about something i don't know what it was but um he was talking about some research project and it i you know it was just very um i was just hooked you know i i you know i i heard him and the, the excitement and enthusiasm with which he was talking about this stuff i was like oh this is interesting so you know i don't know anything about it so i just you know uh walked in and i and i just sat in on that conversation and i talked with dave and um, I, I don't remember what we talked about, but I remember just being really struck by um, just his style, his, you know, his way of talking about 
really complex and seemingly messy systems and problems, you know, relating to seemingly messy systems, but talking about them in a way where he really, you know, where, where he was really focusing on the deep fundamental physics, uh, you know, buried in the workings of those messy systems. And, you know, he was talking about how by understanding those physics, you could actually understand something about complex, messy, soft and living matter. And I just thought that was really fascinating and just his style and, you know, we mesh in terms of our personalities. He has this infectious enthusiasm for science. And I was just like, wow, this is really cool. And, you know, this guy is really cool. And, um, and so I, you know, I, I went back and I started looking up his work and I just, I was, I was fascinated. I thought it was super cool. And so I was like, okay, well, I'm just, I'm going to, I'm going to go work with this guy. And that's what I did. So I completely switched fields and I decided, you know, basically then and there to go to Harvard for my PhD and work with Dave. And I did. And um, it, and that is, um, that was when I got bitten by the soft matter bug. And that, you know, and that kind of led to everything that I've done since. Um, and, you know, I, I, I love soft matter research um, because A, first of all, not many people know what soft matter is, so I should probably define what that is, but B, it just brings together so many different fields and so many different perspectives on trying to make sense of seemingly messy, complex systems and actually is able to make sense of seemingly messy and complex systems. And I just find that so fascinating that that's really, you know, that's at the arc for the rest of my uh, career. So, um, yeah, so, so that's, that's how I got into soft matter. That's really wonderful. And so why don't you elucidate us on your graduate research that you did? And before that, uh, give us a brief overview of what soft matter entails and what are the pressing challenges of the day in that field? Yeah, I mean, you know, soft matter is a weird field. Um, soft matter is a weird field, um, which is which, it, which makes it just so much more fun. It's it's really like a Frankenstein hybrid field. So what is soft matter? So okay, I'll try to give a definition of it, but then elaborate on you know why I find that actually you know super fascinating. In general, soft matter is essentially so okay. You know it when when it comes to materials and material science, typically when you take a material science course. Right. And I took a material science course as an undergrad. Penn has a really, um, really vibrant material science community. So it exposed me to a lot of interesting problems in material science. When you typically take a course in material science or learn about material science, you learn about things like crystals and ordered materials. And, you know, okay, in a crystal, right, the way you understand how, I don't know, how electrons move or how um, phonons like lattice vibrations move or whatever is well you focus on one you know one atom one unit cell and you understand that really well and then you figure out ways based on the periodicity and order of of your lattice and your material then you figure out ways that you can kind of translate what you learned for one uh, atom or one molecule or whatever to the overall system and study that and so you know that's uh, and then you can study 
you know, uh, me mechanical properties and electronic properties and optical properties and things like that. And that's all well and good. But many, many materials are not, you know, perfectly ordered, um, you know, chemically, strongly chemically bonded uh, uh, materials, right? Many, many materials are not hard, but soft, squishy materials, right? Like our bodies, like, you know, like fluids, like gels, like, you know, uh, many of the things that um, just arise in the world around us are soft and squishy materials where the, you know, soft and squishy means they're easily restructured and deformed by mechanical um, stresses, right? And as a result of that, typically they're inherently disordered like the atoms or molecules or constituents that make them up are not perfectly ordered, strongly bonded together, but they're disordered, right? They rattle around, they move around. Um, and, you know, and, and so automatically, you know, a lot of the things that you learn in material science for studying order materials goes out the window. Um, they're, they're highly responsive to, you know, mechanical stresses to other stresses because they're soft and squishy, right? And so they often have nonlinear responses and things like that, right? And so soft matter in a nutshell is the study of materials that are squishy, <laughs> right? And how do you define squishy is up to you, right? But essentially it's a study of materials or classes of uh, materials uh, uh, um, and, uh, you know, collections of constituents that are disorder, inherently disordered, and um, highly responsive to external stimuli and stresses. And as for a result, they're often squishy. So, you know, examples are everywhere. Foods are soft materials. Um, you know, various uh, cosmetics and formulations are soft materials. The toothpaste that you brush your teeth with this morning is a soft material. The hair gel that you put on your hair is a soft material. The, um, um, you know, the, the milk that you drank is a soft material. Um, you know, the, the, the plaque that's on your teeth is a biofilm. That's a community of bacteria encased in a polymer solution, in a polymer network. That's a soft material. Right, your body, your tissues, the gels in your bodies, those are all soft materials. You know, so soft materials are everywhere. You know, soil, the ground beneath your feet is a soft material, right? Um, so soft matter is just everywhere. And now the thing, the reason why I think this field is so fascinating, right, is because, okay, fine. Soft material, a soft matter is a study of things that are squishy and soft and disordered and things like that. And I just rattled off a whole bunch of examples that all fit that bill, but are very, very different, right? Soil and toothpaste are two very different things, right? And typically soil is studied by geoscientists, environmental scientists, you know, um, um, soil scientists. Toothpaste is studied and engineered by, you know, formulation scientists and um, you know, people in the cosmetics industry and formulations industry and things like that, chemical engineers. And on the face of it, you would think they're completely unrelated to each other. But, and here's the beauty of it, but 
at the end of the day, soil is basically a collection of solid grains, of mineral grains that are all packed together in some configuration, right? How they're packed together and the properties of the individual grains um, and the, maybe the water content of the pore spacing between them and the, you know, the amount of uh, the, how densely packed they are, how, how much load it's under, essentially sets the properties of soil, right? How stiff it is, how permeable it is, you know, all these important things. Toothpaste is, uh, as it turns out, also a collection of particles, solid particles that are in a polymeric network, right? And it's rheological properties, you know, how it flows or it doesn't flow, right? Um, also reflects the interactions between those particles, how packed they are, things like that. And weirdly enough, it turns out that a lot of the physics that you can use to predict you know, the properties of soil, let's say the mechanical properties of soil, you can also use to predict the mechanical properties of toothpaste or foam or mayonnaise, you know, which are also collections of particles that are packed together in some way. That's weird. That's crazy. But that's the beauty of soft matter research is that, um, you know, by considering diverse classes of materials in the same framework and trying to abstract out the kind of differences between them and really just focus on the similarities between them and try to understand general principles that can be used to explain and predict the properties of these diverse class of materials and ultimately to control them and make them better and do them or do what we want them to do is what soft matter science is all about. And so, you know, soft matter has a really rich history where, um, you know, in, in the uh, 19th century and in the 20th century, you know, there were colloidal scientists who are mainly chemists who would study, you know, nanoparticles and droplets and things like that. Um, and then there are fluid mechanicians who would study fluids and how they flow. And then, you know, there are geoscientists and bioengineers and biologists and so on and so forth. And what's happened in soft matter over the past, I would say something like 20, 30 or so years is the recognition that in many cases, there are universal principles that can be deduced and learnt and that actually can apply to predicting and describing the properties of these seemingly disconnected classes of materials. And trying to discover those universal principles, I think is really, really cool. And that's the power of soft matter is now, instead of you know, um, just treating you know, soil just uh, uh, you know, by geoscientists and toothpaste just by you know, formulation scientists, actually trying to treat these diverse class of materials in a common way and try to make sense of them in a common way. I think is really powerful. It's both very beautiful intellectually to be able to describe these diverse classes of materials using a unified language, but also it's very powerful because it now gives us new ways to control these things in ways that we couldn't before because we were just you know focusing on them uh, from a you know from a more from a narrower perspective. So that was a long-winded 
way of answering your question, which is what is soft matter and why I find it uh, exciting. Soft matter is whatever you want it to be, <laughs> but it ultimately it's trying to study. Uh, it's a study of soft, disordered, squishy things. How would you define soft? How do you define disordered? How do you define squishy? How do you define um, nonlinearly responsive materials is up to you. But it's trying to uh, describe these things using a unified framework. That's a really phenomenal overview of the field and a really wonderful deep dive into what soft matter entails and something that you really, really, really wonderfully elucidated on the intricacies of soft matter and how it's ubiquitous around us. It's not something that you need to go out there in the lab or observe under a microscope. It's a toothpaste in your tube or it's the hair gel or soil, mayonnaise, some seemingly random stuff in common day life. They are soft matter and the mechanics and the physics of these systems is what fascinates you and all. So after being bitten by the soft matter bug, I presume in Professor Veed's lab and all, so you have proceeded on to do a postdoc at Caltech and before coming and joining the faculty banks at Princeton, yet you have stayed in the field throughout and all. So how has the questions you have tried answering changed over the years and all? And what is something that you are trying to sort of figure out with respect to soft matter currently in your lab? That's a good question. So, you know, <laughs> again, everything after, you know, after my PhD has also been a kind of random walk. And I would say a non-traditional, uh, I've taken a very, a fairly non-traditional and circuitous route in research and I continue to, and I enjoy that. Um, so, you know, when I was in Dave's lab, I focused on, so my PhD actually had two kind of pieces to it. Um, one was in studying the mechanical properties and um, yeah, the mechanical and release properties of colloidal microcapsules. So imagine ping pong balls, but you know, um, at the scale of microns and tens of microns, right? And these are exciting from, you know, for various applications where you want to kind of, you know, transport various substances and then release them uh, at will. So, you know, it's one uh, uh, often cited example is drug delivery, where you want to develop colloidal microcapsules to hold on to various kinds of pharmaceuticals and then transport them in your body and release them only when they need to be released. And so, you know, I got very interested in just the fundamental properties of those uh, microscale ping pong balls, right? What sets their permeability? How do they buckle? How do they, how do you crush them? You know, what are the mechanics underlying uh, those processes? So that's one of the topics that I studied during my PhD. And then the other topic that I uh, focused on was um, trying to understand this very simple question of how do fluids flow through disordered porous media? So again, let's take the example of soil, right? The ground beneath our feet is a, is a porous material, right? It's a packing of uh, solid particles that are all packed together through its fluids and chemicals and, you know, even cells have to move for various important applications and agriculture and engineering and environment, uh, environmental settings. And so the question is, how do fluids move through these disordered spaces? How do, uh, you know, how do emissible fluids get 
get stuck in those spaces? How do they get pushed out? And so this is part of you know what I what I um, studied during my PhD, and I really enjoyed it. And you know we were able to come up with you know new experiments to uh, shed light on some of these questions that I mentioned. Um, and you know as I was getting near the end of my PhD, um, you know I knew that there were that I had just scratched the surface uh, in my PhD work, and I knew that there were many interesting questions in that area relating to soft mechanics and flow through porous media that I still wanted to tackle. But to be honest, I wanted a change. I wanted to kind of, I got too comfortable with those questions. I got too comfortable in that field and I really wanted to step out of my comfort zone and learn something new, learn something that would really just scare, you know, scare me a little bit and force me to think differently and you know really step out of my comfort zone and so you know typically for postdoc you know people kind of um you know do some work in their phd and then they move on to something that's pretty similar and you know pretty connected to what they did in their phd and then beyond that they they keep going and i really did not want to do that i you know i really kind of wanted to be bold and kind of just uh do something completely different. And so what I did as I was finishing my PhD, I just took some of the journals that I really enjoy reading and I just read through them and made a list of the papers that I thought were the most interesting to me, regardless of whether or not I had any knowledge of that field or you know anything about that, just being completely agnostic and just reading them just for interest, I kind of made a list of, you know, papers that I just found intellectually stimulating and fascinating. And I made a list of, uh, you know, these papers and I uh, uh, looked at the groups that were publishing those papers and I looked at their research and so on and so forth. And I finally identified um, a, a bunch of groups that I thought were doing research that I just thought was fascinating. I didn't, you know, not research that I didn't necessarily have any expertise in or know anything about, or wasn't even in my area. I just made a list of things that I thought were fascinating. And I emailed them, I cold emailed the, the PIs and I basically said, hey, you know, my name is Sajid, here's my CV. You know, I find what you do very interesting. Would you be interested in, in um, taking me on as a postdoc? And, um, you know, it was kind of just risky. And I, I figured, well, let me just try it out. And, and thankfully it worked out. You know, I, I uh, uh, several of them said, yes, we'd be interested, you know, uh, come visit and we can talk and so on and so forth. So I, I visited these different groups. It was really awesome. And I was very uh, thankful to have the opportunity to just learn about what these people were doing and that, and that they would take a risk on me. And, um, that was around the time that, um, and so Rustam's group was one of them. So Rustam Ismagalov was my postdoc mentor. And um, that was around the time when the gut microbiome was starting to become really kind of um, um, popular. You know, you hear about good bacteria and bad bacteria and how they, you know, how they have all these big impacts on your health, right? This is still a very, um, very active area of research and a very popular, um, uh, popular topic in the scientific, uh, in, in pop science. And so I was really fascinated by the gut microbiome and I was looking through all these papers 
And I was like, you know, this field is really, these papers are all microbiology papers. You know, they're all really important papers, but they're all very focused on microbiology and they're all utilizing, you know, microbiology approaches and ways of thinking. And I was like, but ultimately at the end of the day, the gut and its contents are soft matter, right? Poop is a soft material. <laughs> it's a, it's a yield stress solid, right? It's a collection of, um, you know, polysaccharides and polymers and bacteria, which are essentially, you know, like colloidal particles, they're all packed together, right? Um, and, you know, the, the mucus aligns the surface of your gut, which is a biological barrier. It's a hydrogel. And, you know, these are all, and there's flow, there's peristalsis. There are all these interesting physical and chemical phenomena that are, at the end of the day, self-matter phenomena. And so I was, uh, you know, I thought to myself, well, this could be really cool to explore, you know, the gut microbiome and the gut in general, its workings could be really cool to explore from the lens of soft matter and soft matter physics. And thankfully, Rustam was, um, you know, at Caltech, he, you know, he had a, a, a gut microbiome initiative that they were building up. And thankfully, he, you know, he took a, he, he took a chance on me. He said, sure, you know, come here, uh, join as a postdoc. Um, you know, do something interesting related to the gut microbiome and he gave me a lot of freedom. And I'm very, and that was another, I think, very transformative moment in my career where, you know, I'm very thankful to Rusum for A, you know, taking on this person who, you know, didn't know anything about the gut and B, um, you know, giving me the freedom to kind of try to figure out, you know, find interesting questions there that we could answer from a, a unique uh, perspective. And so, um, you know, when I was at Caltech, the first year, essentially, I just spent learning how to do surgery on mice. I actually, you know, worked with mice and learning how to, you know, cut open their guts and to look at them under a microscope and all this stuff, um, which is crazy. I went from doing, you know, microfluidics experiments to doing uh, surgery on mice. And that was kind of what I spent my first year doing. Um, it's just learning all and talking to the biologists and learning about the gut. And it was really, really interesting. And it definitely forced me to step out of my comfort zone and learn new things. And because of that, you know, I was able to uh, just learn about what I think are very basic, fundamental, soft matter questions in that context, right? Um, and these are questions that we still tackle today in my lab. Um, and also I was able to, you know, actually discover some new things that people didn't learn about. So, uh, no before. So, you know, for example, um, I, I was able to show that the mucus that, uh, lines the surface of your gut, you know, which is thought to be a biological barrier that helps prevent pathogens from getting through. Um, you know, it's a, it's a hydrogel, it's a cross-linked network, kind of like a polymeric sponge. And, um, I was able to show that just like we know for hydrogels, synthetic hydrogels and soft matter, that that's actually a responsive, dynamically changing biomaterial. It gets squished depending on uh, the osmotic pressure of the contents around it, which depends on your diet. And so, and we can actually model that using polymer, uh, uh, you know, using theories that were developed in polymer science, completely different area, 
right? But it actually, you know, we can actually say something quantitative about how this important biological barrier behaves in response to changes in its environment. So that was really fun for me. And that's what I did in my postdoc. And then, you know, I came to Princeton and uh, my lab, you know, kind of draws on all these different, uh, very diverse experiences that I've had in research um, to try to tackle problems in soft and living relating to soft and living matter from what I think is, you know, a, a very unique perspective where we try to really do very basic fundamental studies of things that are messy and complex. And we try to really make sense of um, complex systems, complex soft and living matter systems in a way that I think um, is potentially useful and that other people can, can build off of. So that was another transformative experience for me was just getting to join Rusum's lab and being exposed to this completely different class of problems. And that just generated so many interesting questions for me. And those are part of the questions that we're addressing in my lab today. That's a really, really fantastic overview of your own journey in soft matter and the pressing challenges of the day. And that was in industries with some really prescient insights, like stepping out of your comfort zone. This is an adage that will hold true for us both in personal and professional life. Even as scientists, it's important to step out of the fields. And it's seen that sort of these crossed or getting two fields to sort of talk with each other and all that is where the most interesting questions of the day underlie you can't silo yourself or siloize your research by saying it's pure physics or pure chemistry or pure engineering for that matter it is these mixtures and two and something that reflects in your entire experience as an undergrad who had interest in economics and philosophy and ended up majoring in maths and physics to pursuing soft matter research which is at the intersection of multiple fields like material science, physics, mathematics, biology, chemistry and all, and something you're doing and all, it's really, really important to remember not to siloize oneself in a very, very interdisciplinary world, both in terms of scientific research and not siloizing oneself in personal life also does wonders and all. It opens up to sort of opens our mind to sort of accepting a diverse set of people and not believe there are only certain things that me should meet our standards and that's how one to lead one's life that was some really wonderful insights and all and along the way you have talked about your wonderful mentors you have had from right from dave charlie rustam and all so are there any other people who have sort of mentored you in your journey throughout your career and all and who do you really seek out as inspirations and for having played an instrumental role in where you are right now, both in terms of personal and professional life and all. And is there any lessons that you sort of pass on to your mentees coming from your and garnering from your experiences with your diverse set of mentors? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I mean, definitely, you know, the people I mentioned are, you know, the, the first people who come to mind for me for the reasons that I mentioned, you know, Charlie got me bitten by the research bug. Dave got me written by the soft matter bug and um, and he really kind of taught me to think deeply about whatever I was, I was, I was working on. Rusum really exposed me to a new class of problems and a new way of thinking. And so those were very transformative 
um, um, experiences for me and those were mentors from whom I learned a great deal. I have to say, you know, I also just, well, okay, there are a few other things, you know, so one is I consider um, throughout my entire career, I consider the people with whom I worked, just, you know, the fellow students and grad, you know, graduate students and postdocs in the labs that I was in were mentors to me in so many ways, right? Just in teaching me how to do good research, how to think about things, or just personally, you know, just just uh, uh, teaching me how to how to be a good person, and you know, I, I I try to you know take the good from uh, from all the amazing examples of people around me, and even to this day, right? Um, you know, I my colleagues are mentors to me. You know, they they I'm constantly inspired by the the people who I interact with here at Princeton my students are mentors to me they teach me how to be a good advisor they you know I constantly learn from them so you know those are all um, important mentors in different ways my parents of course have always been you know my mentors since day one I would say my dad especially really um, I, I I learned a lot you know I, I uh, was a ever since, you know, for as long as I can remember has been uh, kind of an example of um, what a solid work ethic looks like. You know, he has a strong work ethic. He's a good person, like a fundamentally good person who just cares deeply about the people around him and cares about making, you know, hopefully putting good into the world. And so that's something that's always, you know, shaped who I am as a person, you know, from day one. My mom was the one who taught me math from a very early age, I still remember at the kitchen table, she would teach me how to, you know, how to um, add using paper clips and whatever. And, you know, she is the one who really kind of um, um, just taught, taught me how to, um, how to really uh, not give up and work hard at things. Uh, I learned, I learned that from, from her. Um, and, you know, my parents have, Face a lot of struggles and just seeing the 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 their commitment to just making you know their uh, their kids' lives better you know is, is something that really motivates me um, has always motivated me and continues to you know when I was a kid I never dreamed that I would be where I am today um, that was just not something that was conceivable to me for many different reasons you know, coming from where I was and uh, what I did, but I think just, you know, be, I've been very lucky in my experiences and I've been lucky to, you know, interact with really just fundamentally good people um, who are just really good at what they do. And, you know, just having all these amazing role models around me and um, having, you know, having the chance to have these opportunities to do research and, you know, uh, keep doing uh, new things has been very inspiring and instrumental to me. And so that's something that I always try to um, give back in, 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 in my lab is, you know, giving people opportunities and really um, trying to help them to um, reach their full potential and, and be as successful as they can be, however they define success. And that's a personal, uh, that's a personal definition. Um, and uh I have to say, you know, one, <laughs> I don't know if mentor is the right word, but one really influential person in my life, and this is maybe a very cliched thing to say, but it is 
it is true. One very uh, uh, instrumental person in my life right now is my daughter. So uh, my daughter is two years old now or two and a half. Um, and um, she, I mean, you know, I've learned, well, I've just learned how to, you know, juggle work-life balance and really try to just be a, uh, a little better at, you know, um, um, prioritizing things and spending my time and um, taking care of myself and things like that. But also, you know, this is something that I really, um, I really find fascinating. So, you know, my daughter's two years old now. To her, the world is just this incredibly fascinating place, right? You, any kid, right? They're fascinated by everything. You know, they want to bang on this table because they want to, you know, they want to, they want to hear what it sounds like. They want to see what it feels like. They want to see what happens when they drop this pencil or throw this thing or, you know, get in the dirt and play with this, you know, they, kids are, uh, I think, just fearlessly inquisitive about the world around them in a way that I think really, you know, they have no inhibitions and, you know, or mental kind of, um, you know, blocks like, oh, this is not something I can do, or, you know, this is not something that's, that's worth looking at or, you know, whatever. The kids don't care. They're interested by everything. Right. Um, and I find that very inspiring. And, you know, actually going back to the soft matter and why I find soft matter so interesting, right? Who cares if something is, bio, bio, is biology or chemistry or math or physics or whatever, right? Doesn't matter. We'll learn the right things that we need to learn to, about a system to study it in our own way, right? But it's all just driven by curiosity, independent of, oh, I'm not a biologist. I can't study this. Oh, I'm not a chemist. I can't study this, whatever. Right. And I think I find it very inspiring that kids at the end of the day, they don't care about, you know, uh, these artificial uh, mental roadblocks that we impose for ourselves or, you know, is, you know, is this going to be important for this application? Kids don't care. They're just curious and they're fearless in kind of just exploring the world around them and really just trying to make sense of it all. And I find that very inspiring. And I think in the work that I do, and as a scientist, uh, you know, I similarly try to be, you know, try to be bold and kind of uninhibited in asking scientific questions and trying to, you know, answer scientific questions. And I try to also, you know, communicate that to my students and my postdocs, you know, to be kind of fearless in asking interesting and important questions, um, questions that you think are interesting and important and be fearless in asking them and also trying to answer them. And, you know, in, in a way that is deep and, you know, meaningful. And um, yeah, so this was a long-winded way of answering your question, but I hope I answered it. This was an absolutely brilliant answer to the question. And as you mentioned about as scientists and even as individual human beings, it's important to have the insatiable curiosity we had as a child to sort of drive our interviews and all. And it also comes back to your point about sort of uh, being open to sort of different things, trying out new things rather than sort of being closed, cloistered and reserving oneself to a specific 
either career path or sort of a specific group of individuals around you and all. It's really important. And this is a very, very important lesson we can derive from kids like your daughter and everyone else. Yeah, exactly. And I think, um, you know, that's why, that's why I love what I do. I, I, you know, I've never worked a day in my life. I, this is, this is, uh, you know, it's an immense privilege to get to do what I do and just ask questions and answer questions every day. That's, that's, that's incredible. Absolutely. And as it is, some uh, growing up, you mentioned that you moved around a lot of big cities and all. So uh, as an ethnic immigrant and all, have you ever had any issues because of your ethnicity or any other reason, either in academia or otherwise? Because discrimination against underrepresented groups have played academia for long, like many other fields and all. So were you on the receiving end at any point of time? Or were there any mentee of yours that was on the receiving end and you had to step in on their behalf and all? And how do you tackle this once you have sort of moved up the ranks, you are a post, you were a postdoc and then uh, currently you're a PI and a professor and all. So how has it been overall? Yeah, that's 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 an interesting question, and that's something I think you know I think about every day. You know, I again, I y yes, uh, I you know, uh, as a kid and um, as a teenager and in college and even in graduate school, you know, there have been you know many many instances of um, you know explicit or implicit racism in various forms. Um, you know, I I I I know what it you know, I've, I've um, been made to feel like an outsider many times, um, but I also, you know, have to acknowledge that I have, um, you know, many uh, opportunities that were given to me uh, that I'm very thankful for. I have, um, you know, a tre tremendous amount of privilege that I try to acknowledge all the time. And, you know, the, uh, the from my perspective, you know, my goal right now is to do, you know, of course, do the best work that I can, um, give my students and postdocs the best, you know, most inclusive, most diverse, most open environment um, they can be in so that they can be the most successful and also to try to make the world around us a better place. And so that, of course, you know, a big part of that is in making sure that, um, you know, we've had, you know, I've had doors open for me that I'm opening doors for the, for people to come after me. And so, you know, I think, um, you know, I, something I, I, me and my students and my postdocs, we try to actively do every day is, you know, th think to ourselves, how can we make um, the world around us a better place and use whatever privilege we have to, to open doors for, for other people. And so there are many different ways we try to do this. Um, you know, and in fact, one of my postdocs started a subgroup in, 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 our, in our group that we call our, the Better Tomorrow subgroup. And it's focused on basically just us trying to explore ways in which, well, first to educate ourselves on, you know, issues relating to um, you know, diversity and equity and inclusion, um, particularly within the world of, you know, science and technology and academia that we inhabit, but also to explore ways and, and brainstorm ways in which we can make things better and, and do our part. 
And that's, you know, a continual conversation and a continual kind of process and it never ends. And, you know, ultimately our goal is to, you know, try to do whatever we can to, to, to make the world around us a better place. At the end of the day, you know, I, I feel, you know, ever since my daughter was born, especially, you know, I, I look at her and I think to myself, okay, what things can I do today that will make the world better for my daughter and for people like her um, and people not like her as well uh, in the future. And, and I think that's important uh, for us as scientists and as researchers to just be continually asking ourselves and to genuinely make an effort to, to um, you know, really try to acknowledge the opportunities that we've had and the privileges that we have and also, um, you know, use whatever um, uh, whatever uh, opportunities we have to give opportunities to other people. Um, yeah, that's that's constantly something we're we're thinking about and talking about it and brainstorming on. Absolutely, those are some really prescient points. And as you you made some really fantastic points about the interviews and initiatives that you carry out and all. And you made some a, a brilliant point in sort of like talking about how it's important both as scientists, researchers, and all to acknowledge the existence of this problem, acknowledging the elephant in the room and all because many tend to believe many in science, many outside science tend to believe that science is a very objective enterprise free of all biases and all but at the same time science is a very human enterprise and a very human biases and all do creep into it yes sir soft matter as a whole might not be biased but at the same time the researchers who do they have their own existing set of biases and it's important to acknowledge them and strive to create a better place that encompasses everyone and makes it a safe place for everyone rather than only a certain set of individuals and all and it also plays into the myth of that lone genius trope that's carried out by news media and all and something we as scientists our institutional awards and all have a big role to play because predominantly people who have got gotten the plane ticket to Stockholm have been old white men and that's what the media makes out as caricatures of people at the frontiers of science but it's equally important to remember as a Pranam Chatterjee, a postdoc in Professor George Church's lab at Harvard, in a very fantastic Christmas episode of Random Walks came and said, science doesn't really stand on the back of giants or the shoulder of giants as Newton would have us believe. Rather, it stands on the back of all the unheralded postdocs, research technicians, graduate students and all, who strive, who strive day in and day out without seeking the limelight or getting it in the very first place and it is due to these individuals trying to answer the most basic questions and trying to sort of quench the insatiable curiosity childlike curiosity of researchers that's what leads to these big progresses as we talked about through a theme of our conversation has been how we don't know what to do it's basically we are just chasing the path that our curiosity lays us to and it's equally important to remember there are diverse set of people in science like every other enterprise and it's due to the combined efforts of these individuals can science make progress and due to which humanity as a whole can make progress that was beautifully said i i, I could not agree more i think you know um yeah at, at the end of the day science is a people sport and you know science progresses be, through um 
people and through people's work and through the interactions between uh, different researchers and this community that we have as a whole pushes science forward. And it, you know, it is a part of our duty is to make sure that we as a community are figuring out ways to, are, are actively trying to figure out ways to make this community more inclusive, more diverse, really get a more um, a broader set of viewpoints because ultimately that, you know, makes the community better for everyone and enables us to, to move forward um, just as a whole. I, I, I completely agree with that. I, you know, science is a people sport. I, I, I tell this to my students and, you know, that's part of why I love it because I get to interact with so many different people who have different perspectives and, you know, come from um, different backgrounds. And, you know, we all have this one thing in common. We have many things in common, but we all have this one thing in common, especially that we all are just, you know, really into science and we are really into just discovering new things. And we go about it in different ways, maybe, and we think about it in different ways, and we've come from different places. And I think it's important for us all to recognize the, again, the opportunities and privileges that we have, and really try to open the door for people who uh, may not, you know, traditionally have been given the same opportunities, but who are important to bring into our community as well, and, you know, keep pushing things forward. I think, um, yeah, and, you know, you said, you talked about science is not you know, we don't uh, stand on the shoulders of giants. We stand on the shoulders of the students and the postdocs. Absolutely. I could not agree uh, with that more that you are so right there. I, you know, at the end of the day, I don't go into the lab now, right? I'm not, I don't pipette. I don't, you know, do the actual experiments, right? The students and the postdocs are doing the actual work. And the way I see it, and you know, this is something that my student, you know, my group, we 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 talk about a lot. Um, I I really love my group. I think we have just like a really unique and um, I, they're just amazing. And we we have a really we we yeah we we have a really good uh, dynamic and really good interactions. And at the end of the day, it's not my group; it's our group. And it's not my work; it's our work. And it's really their work. And my I see my job as being essentially I'm a cheerleader for their work you know when I give talks I really enjoy showing you know putting their picture on, on the screen and saying look everything I'm going to tell you about today was done by this person this aspect was done by this person you know they they, they really did it and my job is simply to draw attention to their work to communicate it broadly and to help them and you know act as a consultant to my students and postdocs to help them, you know, make their work better, you know, think about questions, you know, oh, did you, you know, have you considered this analysis? Maybe if you plot this in this way, it'll, you know, tell you what you're trying to look at, you know, basically to help them refine what they're doing into the best possible product. But ultimately, they're the ones who are pushing the research forward. And I think that's really important for us all to keep in mind is that Science progresses because of the amazing work of the students and postdocs who, and the technicians and, you know, the actual people who do the work. Um, and as PIs, our job is, you know, my job is to make sure that they have an environment where they can be 
as successful as they can be, where they don't have to worry about, let's say, funding and things like that, where they can just focus on doing the best possible science. And I'm there to help them, you know, figure out how to um, identify the best questions to tackle, the best approaches to do it, the best analyses, the best way to communicate it, so on and so forth, and just help them do their best possible work. Absolutely. Those are some really terrific points. And coming to it, uh, so how do you sort of balance personal and professional life? You talked about you have a two-year-old daughter currently, obviously engaging with her and all does consume with time, as well as uh, the whole of the last year has been a phenomenal experience in right, many right. different ways and all. It still feels we are in some March 500 or 2020 rather than some new year or new month or for that matter and all. So what are some things that you do to sort of distract yourself? Because academia can be a grueling enterprise. Not many times, not sometimes only. And you also mentioned about being, having had a career as a competitive kickboxer. So why didn't you tell us more <laughs> about that? Um, yeah, I, I can definitely talk about that. I, I, uh, that's uh, that's a, a, a fun uh, side note that I, uh, yeah, I, I, I'll, I'd be happy to talk about that. I mean, I would say now, yeah, so the pandemic has definitely been very hard for everyone. It was very hard for us. But I think, um, you know, to your question about how do I juggle, you know, personal life and professional life. So something, of course, is, okay. So, so there are a few things um, that I that I actively try to do. So, you know, I mentioned that at the end of the day, my job is to, you know, work for my students. I really work for my students and my postdocs, and you know, I have an obligation to them to you know, advise them, mentor them as best as I can to give them um, all as many opportunities as I can to help them succeed and really be successful in their work, but also beyond that, right, in their, in their future careers. And, you know, and I work, and I really do my best um, to honor that obligation to them. You know, they do such amazing work, and I have an obligation to them to, you know, to keep pulling in grants and make sure that they're, you know, they, they have the funding to do that they want to do, to keep, you know, working with them to do the best science and answer the most interesting questions and answer them in the best way possible and write the best papers and so on and so forth. You know, I have a real obligation to them. And I feel very lucky to have the group that I do. Um, they are just like phenomenal people. And I feel uh, and I feel this obligation to them to work very hard for them. And so I do that. You know, I, I, I work very hard, you know, six days a week. I, it used to be seven days a week. But now I take uh, uh, one day off, you know, on the weekend. And that is a pure family day. Um, and that's actually helped me be more productive um, because... You know, as part of my obligation to my students and my postdocs, something that took me a while to figure out. And I think, you know, often in academia, we have this unhealthy view that you just work, overwork is praised and, you know, you just work, 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 and that's it. But actually, you know, often it's diminishing returns. And, uh, you know, what I realized is, you know, I have this obligation to my group to really work as hard as I can for them so that we can keep putting our best science out there and doing the best science possible. One thing I realized is, you know what? Taking a day off to just be with my daughter actually uh, 
works better for them because it gives me a day to just rest my brain to not you know think about this paper i'm writing or this grant proposal i'm writing and so then the next day when i get back to that i'm refreshed i just work more effectively i'm not burning myself out right and so i think and that's just how i do it right it's important to take breaks it's important to rest your brain take some time off because then when you go back to time on you're just making better use of your time you're more focused you're more efficient you're more effective at what you do you're just doing a better job you know so on and so forth and so this is something that you know i'm still learning and i've you know learned over the years is it's important to take some time off and to rest your brain and ultimately that results in the best work actually is in getting you know taking some time to just chill out and I try to, you know, and so that's something that's important in my group as well. You know, my, that my students take time off. They're not working all the time. They get some time to just, uh, you know, just ruminate on what they've done, but not constantly push themselves all the time because then you just burn out. And so that's something that I've, I'm constantly learning nowadays, right? The way I do that is again, you know, one day a week on the weekend, is a family day that's purely just for um, my family, you know, and uh, uh, you know, my daughter and I do all sorts of stuff. We, you know, we just have a lot of fun. She explores the world, we go out, we, you know, we do whatever, but just that one day is really important to me. And then on top of that, evenings, every day, evenings are work-free. That's my protected daddy-daughter time. Uh, you know, after dinner, every day, me and my daughter go for a walk together and we just explore nature. Princeton is beautiful. We're so lucky to get to be in this um, beautiful town. We walk around, we talk to each other, we explore nature, we do whatever. That's our protected time. You know, I don't check my emails then. I don't, you know, I might be thinking about work in the back of my mind, but not actively, right? And ultimately, again, that leads to better results for me. I think that, you know, just protecting those evenings um, lets me just take a break from things and then and then I'll wake up and I'll have the answer or you know I'll, I'll it just it just helps uh, and so that's really kind of um, something yeah something that I, I it's very protected for me is those evening walks with my daughter and that one day a week where it's just family time that's what I do other people do it in different ways um, and then you mentioned, you know, competitive kickboxing. So this is, you know, again, before I had a daughter, right? I, there, there are other ways in which I would um, similarly try to find things that I could, um, that I could do that would, that were not science, that were not research, that were not work, that, you know, that I could kind of take a break from my scientific research and focus on something else. And so for me, you know, ever since I was, a, I was, I was a kid, you know, when I was a kid, I used to get bullied. Um, I used to get picked on a lot. I used to get in fights and whatever. And, you know, I also the area of Toronto that I grew up in wasn't really the best. And, you know, for various reasons, um, you know, I, 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 yeah, I would get bullied a lot. Um, also, I was like the only I was one of the few people of color in my in my um, area, and for various reasons, I get bullied a lot. 
And um, eventually, you know, I started doing karate as many kids do. Um, well, you know, many parents want to have energetic kids and they don't know what to do them. So they send them to karate. I did karate from a very young age. I really enjoyed it, blah, blah, blah. But then when I started, um, when I started college, you know, I was very active in various kinds of athletics. But really when I started graduate school was when I realized that, look, I can't just work all the time because ultimately it does not benefit me, nor does it benefit the science. And I, you know, I, I, I realized that, Hey, I need, and, and also, you know, I used to go running a lot. Um, every day I'd go running by the Charles River in Cambridge. It's beautiful. And I actually found that to be really kind of um, important for me because I would be forced to take a break from work. I'd go for a run along the Charles and I would think about stuff and, you know, insights would come to me when I was running, you know, you're just, it's just you and your breath, you know, and, and your thoughts and that's it. And that actually turned out to be super useful for me. I had many, you know, really useful insights just running. And so, you know, I'd go running, but I also like people, <laughs> I like interacting with people. And so running was a bit insular for me and a little kind of isolated. So, um, Actually, I don't know if you've heard of something called Groupon. Um, it's like this, uh, it was very popular a while back there, you know, you get different experiences that you can try out or whatever. There's a Groupon for a kickboxing gym. And I was like, what is, you know, this sounds interesting. So I just did, did this Groupon and I tried out this gym and um, the workout just completely destroyed me. And I was like, this is amazing. This is so much fun and it tied into this kind of karate background that I had and I just started training at this gym and it was and that was my thing I would work hard do the best possible research I could but also then go to the gym and train there and you know that's another thing to try to be excellent at that has nothing to do with your work but you know it's a way to just um to 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 you know, focus on something else. And that was really important to me. And so I really started getting active that in, in that in graduate school and eventually started competing in, in, uh, in kickboxing. And, um, you know, that takes a lot of discipline and focus and it really forced me to structure my time wisely and not just mess around at work, but really focus on, you know, what I needed to do and, you know, be efficient in what I was doing. And, um, yeah, I did that for many years. As a postdoc, I, I, I competed pretty, pretty regularly in kickboxing. And it was really, really, it's something that I miss greatly to this day. Um, but it was just another outlet for me. It was another opportunity to just focus on, some, on being the best at something else, rest my brain. And, um, and that's how I would uh, take a break then. You know, when I started here as a, when I moved here and started here as a professor, um, I just didn't have the time to do that anymore. Uh, my daughter was born, but now you know I I um, I take a break in a different way, uh, but but the principle still holds. Those are some really riveting experiences that you shared, and uh, again, a really wonderful point you made of 
so taking time off your work and all something this is something that actually helps increase your productivity and all and it again again there is a scope of to be a great scientist or to be a top notch researcher you need to be 24/7 in lab doing science all day every day but that's a ridiculous notion and as you mentioned having some time for yourself for your family doing things apart from science and all really helps at and it also helps increase your productivity and better your science it's not only something that for personal benefit or something of that sort and it's important to have time for oneself and all and those are some really really fantastic points you made and all and this has been a really riveting conversation with you and a very fascinating random walk where you talked about your phenomenal random walk through science and life your exceptional mentors the urgent need to sort of emphasize on curiosity driven basic science and your phenomenal life experiences in general so finally as a random walk podcast tradition which three people would you like to come and divulge their own experience in a very riveting random walk like yours oh wow that is a great question <laughs> um what three people yeah wow that's a great question i mean so one person who immediately comes to mind i think you know for me this is this is uh again this is just because of my background and my training um i would say my phd advisor dave waits uh you know i think has had just a very you know a, a, a storied long career in uh, in academia and in research um and in industry and i think you know i i think uh i to this day i constantly ask myself you know what would dave think i i to this day i you know i learned how to think deeply from him and um you know he just has so many different experiences and perspectives on things that i you know i i i uh, yeah it's uh that's that's one person who immediately comes to mind um <laughs> that's a tough question i you know i think um it can be anyone who has been in academia and now might be doing something else there are people who have been nominated who are currently monks by profession they were earlier in academia grad school the academy was too enlightening for them and they they left to monks and all so they will be also be part of random works in the coming days and all so they can be anyone who has had a stint in academy in any form or the other yeah that's you know i there there's so many people the 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 reason why this question is difficult is not because there aren't people i can think of but there's so many people that um that you know it's 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 hard to pick so i'll just you know uh i'll just randomly mention the people who come to mind but this is not to say that there aren't um you know so many other i think just really uh inspiring people um out there you know so i think um someone else who immediately comes to mind you know you were mentioning um before uh curiosity driven research and um you know i think uh uh doing basic science without worrying about you know is it tied to a specific application or something like that you know someone else who i find very inspiring scientifically 
And especially, you know, from this perspective of, um, of just doing basic curiosity-driven research without, you know, worrying about anything else, without worrying about the consequences or, or the importance or, you know, the, the, the practical importance or things like that, is um, someone else who I had the, the pleasure of interacting with when I was a graduate student. It's um, um, Maha, uh, uh, El, uh, El Mahadevan, who is a professor at Harvard as well, who I think, you know, again, is someone who to me exemplifies this notion, uh, you know, this, this uh, perspective of just, you know, doing fundamental basic research um, that's just driven by curiosity without worrying about, you know, a specific application or, you know, um, things of that sort. I think that's also someone else who I, I, um, I, I think could have really interesting things to share and, um, you know, has, has uh, diverse uh, scientific perspectives that I think would be um, quite interesting. So Maha is someone else who I, you know, who just, um, whose work constantly inspires me. And I think the philosophy and the perspective that he brings uh, to his work, I think is um, really fascinating. You know, he, he tackles these questions that are kind of under our nose in a sense. And, um, and uh, you know, somehow he's able to find some really deep insights in uh, this seemingly mundane. And so Maha is someone else who, I, who I've found very inspiring over the years. And then the third person, and again, these are people who are just off the top of my head um, um, that as they, as they come up is um, uh, another, uh, uh, another uh, person in academia who actually visited us here at Princeton um, a while back. Um, I was, uh, you know, I was uh, lucky enough to host her here. And I think um, is another, you know, scientist who does fascinating work in my area that I've been uh, constantly inspired by, um, but also, you know, I think has seen academia in various forms um, is Kate Stebby at UPenn. Um, you know, she, uh, uh, I think Kate has done beautiful research in colloids and active matter in various forms. Um, but also I think has just navigated uh, academic life in various different ways. And so um, I, you know, I find her work and her experiences also just very inspiring. So off the top of my head, those are the three people who I would mention, but that's not because there aren't more people. There are just so many people. And those are the three names that came to mind, uh, you know, at the outset. Those are some absolutely fantastic nominations and thank you, thank you for coming and indulging us in a very fascinating random world. Of course, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun.